If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 620. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audio book of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. Always free to enroll. Get that free class, 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. You can also support the show by going to brianmcclanahan.com. Click on the support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way. You can also click on the shop tab while you're there and get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Send me those show requests. I'd like to hear what you want me to talk about. It's a great way for interaction with the show, and I do appreciate all of it. Now, let's uh, wrap up this week. We've been talking about Abraham Lincoln. We've been talking about secession, and I'm going to wrap it up with a letter that was cited on yesterday's podcast by uh, the historian I critiqued there, um, Lindsay Travinsky. And so she cites this letter from Uriah Tracy to Alexander Hamilton in in, uh, 1797. Now, yesterday I talked about how Travinsky got it wrong, how she left out some important parts of the letter that would actually show what she was saying wasn't entirely accurate. And I'm going to cover that letter today. Now, I'm also going to talk about New England secession because this is really an overlooked part of the American story. You see, as early as 1794, New England Federalists were concerned about the loss of power in the general government. Now, if you go back to 1787 and you look at the Philadelphia Convention, and you look at the arguments made against the Constitution, even from those in New England, like Roger Sherman, who was worried about the loss of state power, and it's why you have the great compromise that you have at the Philadelphia Convention. And then you look at some of the arguments made against the Constitution when it went for ratification, and you look at New England anti-federalists, who are the real federalists, they bring up the same things. Look, we're worried about the fact that we could have a central government that has unlimited powers and will allow the South to essentially control the North. So what these people feared more than anything else was a national government where they had no control over their own political destiny. So New England Federalists were just as sectional, in fact, I would say more sectional than anyone else in the United States in the late 18th century into the early 19th century. In fact, the real sectionalists were these so-called nationalists because what would happen over time is that these people would start using national language, like Daniel Webster, to enforce New England sectionalism on the rest of the United States. And Uriah Tracy lets it out of the bag in 1797 that that's what this is what was really all about. I mean, this is what they really wanted. You see, New Englanders were concerned that they could not control the general government. And if they could not control the general government, they couldn't protect their section, or they couldn't have northern dominance their political power would be reduced. 
1794, two New Englanders approached John Taylor of Caroline in a cloakroom in the Senate and said, look, John, this isn't working. Let's think about getting out of this union. This is 1794, five years after the United States government has begun operation under the Constitution. So we have Congress, Washington's been elected president, he's now in office. So within five years, New Englanders were already saying this thing is not going to work. And what they were most concerned about, of course, was the expansion of the United States into the Western territories and the growing population of the United States through immigration. The expansion of the United States into Western territories meant that you would have more farmers. And New, England, New Englanders knew that they weren't going to be an agricultural section. Now, in 1794, they're a commercial section. George Washington points this out in 1796. They aren't yet industrial, but they're commercial. And so a, a union with people who were farmers, who really didn't care about shipping, was going to be dangerous to their economic livelihood. It's just as when Southerners bristled at attacks on slavery, one of the reasons being is because they were concerned about their economic livelihood. This was their labor force. They didn't see another way to have that kind of labor force in the South without slavery, many of those that were advocating for slavery. So you have these economic arguments being made, North and South, and protecting their economic livelihood in both instances. So here in New England, you've got these New England merchants who are afraid that they're going to lose their, their shirts if the South continues to dominate the government, which is why they opposed virtually every attempt to expand into the West. If you look at the uh, if you look at the Hartford Convention of 1814, 1815, and you look at what they wanted at that Hartford Convention, they were trying to get things like removal of the Three-Fifths Compromise. Well, why would that be something on the table? Not because they were opposed to the practice of slavery in moral terms, though some were. What they really were afraid of was Southern dominance of the government. And they knew as the United States expanded West and you added more and more slave territory, that would mean more and more farmers, or even just Western farmers in general. What they figured out, though, was that not all Western farmers were on board with slavery. There's a lot of racism in the West. And so you can play that position up. Well, uh, if, you, if you let the South in the Western territories, you're going to not only have slaves, but also free blacks. So you have places like Illinois that prohibited free blacks from living there. You have Ohio, which had a, essentially a fee if you wanted to live in Ohio and you were black. I mean, these were things that they were doing to try to prohibit blacks from living in the West. So as you expand West, that creates more farmers. But of course, if you can split that South-West coalition, you can gain control of the government. Calhoun recognized it. That's why he said, look, we need to start supporting internal improvements because if we don't, we're going to lose the West. So this was, this was all about power. You go back and you look at what's happening in the 1790s. It's about power. It's why the North wanted the Sedition Act. It's why the North wanted the Alien Acts. Why? Because they saw that as a way to prevent Republicans from winning elections long-term and also to keep people out of the United States who would vote Republican. Right. So, I mean, this was a political move that backfired on them because people saw it rightly for what it was, which was a naked attempt to control the general government by suppressing free speech. So, 1797, nothing is different. In fact, all Tracy is saying out loud to Alexander Hamilton is what many people already thought in 1797. In fact, you, many people already thought this in the 1780s. As I said yesterday, it's why Randolph 
was so afraid that the Constitution wouldn't get ratified because if it didn't get ratified, we would actually have disunion in the United States. It's why Governor Morris, or Governor Morris, stood up in the Philadelphia Convention and said, look, a lot of people are talking about differences north and south. If they're real, let's just break this thing up right now. The people in Philadelphia certainly didn't want that to happen, and I think that's where it didn't break up at that point. But you certainly had a lot of people in the United States who were uncomfortable living in a union with people that they didn't necessarily like, didn't have any cultural continuity with, didn't see eye to eye with, and certainly did not want to be in a political or economic union with. And Uriah Tracy is one of those people. Now, Uriah Tracy was not part of the Essex Junto. Um, he was certainly a secessionist, though. He was opposed to the Louisiana Purchase. Uh, he thought about secession at that point. So did many other New Englanders. That was not uncommon. But he was uh, the president pro temp of the Senate at one point. And he did die in Washington, D.C., and he's buried there. But um, this is what he wrote to Alexander Hamilton on the 6th of April, 1797. Now, context matters, and this is where Chervinsky leaves stuff out to, to make you think that all he's talking about here is slavery at one point. So he says, Sir, I thank you for the letter of the first instant, but as Johnson of Salisbury teases to purchase for him the land which lies in that town in your care, I will think you right to write me or him whether you mean he should have it. Your plan, you say, respecting our public affairs is to move together till common danger rouse to common action. I am perfectly in sentiment with you, provided we can rouse before all is lost and to exhaust attempts at negotiations. What he's talking about here, of course, is what's going on in France. Hamilton, the nationalist, is saying we've got to go together, right, until common danger rouse to common action. We've got to move together till that. And then we can work out all these differences at that point. Hamilton was always the nationalist. Now, Hamilton in Poughkeepsie uh, during the ratification of the Constitution was talking about state powers, but Hamilton was always interested in one voice moving forward. And he would follow that policy throughout his time in the general government. He says, in this, Tracy says, in this I agree, if it has not been done already. I have no objection to clothing with full powers to treat with France, either of our foreign ministers or even keeping Mr. Pinckney at Amsterdam or any other convenient place for the purpose as he shall have, as he has all the ordinary and extraordinary powers of an envoy. And let France and the world know we are ready to negotiate on any terms of accommodations. The moment the French government are willing to treat, with, treat us with civility and propriety, but sir... I am not willing to send an envoy extraordinary to France, nor to retract a syllable of our government acts, nor a single step of the administration, saying an envoy now would do all of this, and more. It would commit the whole of our national dignity to be trampled upon by the haughty and accursed nation, and rivet their inf infamous disorganizing chains upon us beyond even our present disgraceful situation. So, 1797, of course, you have a very unstable government in France. And uh, this leads in to the directory and some of the things that are going on there. And what Tracy is saying is that we're being insulted in the United States. And uh, we don't want to be France. We don't want to be France. You see, this is where the Jays Treaty, at least one historian has pointed out, is the turning point in American political parties. Pointing to that, this dispute over France, pro-France, or pro-England as the real split in American political parties during the Washington administration. And there is an argument to be made for that. 
more than economics, more than unconstitutional power, more than anything else, that particular incident, when Jay goes over and crafts Jay's treaty and brings it back, and you have a real fissure in the United States over support for the treaty or not. Southerners felt betrayed. Northerners thought it was a pretty good deal. But also in the Washington cabinet, you've got Hamilton and Jefferson not seeing eye to eye on which side should be supported. Now, Jefferson certainly was, after he retired, was certainly in favor of neutrality. And this is where uh, you know, there was this debate, the, the Pacificus Helvidius debates, where you have Madison and Hamilton slugging it out in the press through pseudonyms over the power of the president to declare neutrality. I mean, and Jefferson is saying to, to Madison, Jimmy, you got to take up your pen here. You're the only one that can confront Hamilton directly and do a good job at it. Nobody else can do it. You've got to do it. So those debates are important, but you've already seen Citizen Genet. You've seen some of the things that are going on in the Washington cabinet, in the Washington administration that are showing that you know Britain and France are the real issues here. And of course, Hamilton as agent number seven, uh, you know, that's, that's something that's really interesting about Hamilton. He was basically working behind Washington's back to try to get the United States into a permanent treaty with the British. So the Federalists, of course, in New England wanted to be on, on board with the British, and uh, Tracy is showing that here. Then he says this, Every nerve ought to be exerted to induce a preparation for war. This preparation is not only proper, but necessary to our existence as an independent nation. See, he's using the United States as a nation, not a federal republic. So he's looking at this in national terms, but speaking in sectional terms. And if such a vote cannot be obtained in the House of Representatives, the senators there seem to be yet a doubt of what will be the condition of our country. We shall be much worse than colonies to France, we shall be like the little sister republics in Europe, oppressed with spoilations and then taxed for the very fraternal piracy. If the country can be roused to a proper sense of their wrongs and their national dignity, if we are not so far benumbed with French principles as to have lost a sense of all propriety, we shall undoubtedly arm in self-defense and let the French nation and the world know we have the discernment and spirit to discover and resent injuries of the most flagrant nature. So here you have this Anglophile saying, we don't want to be a colony of France. That's the real issue here. The French are abusive. If we don't get off the French train, we're going to be a colony to France. And later on, he says, I'd rather be a colony to England, right? To Great Britain. That's preferable to being a colony of France. Though he's saying we, we need to be an independent nation and France is going to drag us into that. They're going to drag us out of that, I should say. We're not going to be independent. He says, but if the House reps, as I much fear, they will not only vote to do nothing, but add to this their opinion by a public vote that the government has injured France, and we deserve all this, as many of them now talk. Then it is, and in that case only, that I urge a separation. So what has he said? Why should we separate from the United States? When the United States government blames the United States for the problems with France. At that point, we should have a separation. Notice, that's the, that's the straw that broke the camel's back. So that's, that's the breaking point. A foreign policy issue would be the breaking point for Uriah Tracy that the United States should have secession. Okay? So the very first 
attempts at secession were over several things, or at least discussions of it in the United States after the Constitution is ratified. Here you have Northerners saying, our foreign policy is so important, we should have a separation if the Congress blames France or blames the United States for the problem in France. Okay, If the Congress says that, we should leave. Now think about what happens later on. The righteous cause Mithras and Lincoln himself would say, well, uh, we're fighting for democracy. We're fighting because you oppose an election. You oppose this. is this is a, And that's the real issue here. Here's Tracy saying, if the House of Representatives, in their infinite wisdom, as a legal body, says that the United States has caused France problems, we should leave the Union. Because he disagrees with that stance politically. And then he gets into the secession part. The southern part of the Union is increasing by frequent importations of foreign scoundrels as well as of, by those of home manufacture. I talked about this yesterday. Their country is large and capable of such increase, both in population and number of states. There is the kicker. First of all, he says the South is a separate country, <laughs> right? Which it was. And he, he knows that these two areas are not going to see eye to eye. They're going to get more states. And as they get more states, what's going to happen? That in both houses of Congress, the northern states will soon be swallowed up. We won't have any political power. We're going to be impotent in this government. We can't do anything, which is why we should have a separation, because the South is going to control the United States. And the name and real character of an American soon be known only as a thing of tradition. So he's saying a northerner is a real American. Now, that's an interesting stance, right? Because as you look at American history, there's, there's different Americas. Now, the Jeffersonian vision of America was dominant for 80 years. What it meant to be an American was often defined by a very Jeffersonian position. Not, I mean, look, Franklin and Washington, both very important Americans. And you could say Benjamin Franklin was the most popular American. George Washington, of course, was the most popular American at one time. Washington, a product of Virginia. Franklin, uh, of, uh, of look, Massachusetts slash Pennsylvania. But the fact is, um, you've got this image of America politically defined by Jefferson. Tracy is saying, no, no, no. The image of America to the world is not that. It's New England. Now, I think that would be a, an interesting thing to dig down into. What did the world really think of America at this time? It would be hard to figure out. But certainly, this is what Tracy thinks. The image of an American is defined by New England. Maybe there was something to that. I don't know. I mean, if you look at how the British conceived of the United States in 1775, they looked, 1774, they looked at New England as the rabble-rousers. That was something different, you know, than the South was kind of on board with them. But, I mean, this is interesting how you come up with these, these uh, phrases here. And he says, Add to this the explosion which must sooner or later derive itself from their slaves and which must be hastened by a step of the government drawing closer the bands of amity with the French. Now, that's the part that she left off. And which must be hastened by such a step of the government drawing closer the bands of amity with the French, all these and many more painful facts induce me to believe a separation absolutely necessary to preserve an independence in a part which could not be done united. 
Now, you could read into that and say, well, we're going to have a, an explosion from their slaves and this alliance with the French. So it could be a dispute about slavery, or it could be a dispute about foreign policy, or this could mean, as I talked about yesterday, there would be an insurrection in the South because of slaves. We've already seen that in Haiti. But he doesn't really get into what he, he means by that. This is where I think Travinsky is being a little dishonest. When you cut it off right there and you leave off the next part of it, you create this impression that it's only about slavery that the issue is. But no, no, no. No, there's much more to this. He says, we are, we are really so different in manners and opinion and in activity and exertion that the northern states have been a number of years carrying the southern on their backs. In this, in this view of the subject, I cannot be brought to regret a separation. If we must altogether become colonies or worse to France or separate, I am for a separation. If we are in the northern colonies to be colonies to France or England, I choose the latter. But I really see no danger of any connection beyond that of commerce and navigation, such as we now have with Great Britain, with some additions of a similar kind. So he's saying, look, if, if we are going to have, if we're going to be colonies of France or separate, I want to separate. Notice he's not really talking about slavery here anymore. He's talking about colonies of France or separate. Right, that's what's going to be. If we're going to be colonies of France, then we need to separate. But if we're going to pick between Britain or France, I'd rather be a colony of Great Britain because there it's just going to be commerce and navigation. The French, are, the British aren't going to, going to try to control us. The French would. An influence of a political kind cannot be established by the British nation. And as to the French, with the South combating the North in connection with Britain, allow the worst, it is only subjugation to one power or another and is that any worse than the situation we shall be in if my fears are verified as to the conduct of the House of Representatives? So he's saying, look, the British can't establish a, uh, a political influence over the United States, but the French could. Why? Because the South, the, the South is inviting it, right? And this is a problem. He says, French influence must not be increased, it must be diminished. I cannot hesitate a moment between the increase of French influence and a division of the Union. I can conceive of no possible situation so terrible to this country as to admit the French to impose such friendship upon us as they are determined to do unless timely resistance is given. Now, again, think about what's happening here. This entire letter is about foreign policy, not slavery. But if you look at Chervinsky, you would think it's all about slavery. This is all about foreign policy. Tracy is concerned that French, that the French or France will dominate the United States. And if that's going to be the case, he wants out of the Union. No, no other reason. This is it. It's not because of slavery. It's because of this. It's not because of immig immigration, which is what she kind of makes that essay out to be as well. It's about immigration. All these hoodlums coming in here. These, uh, these um, scoundrels coming in here. He says, I cannot fear British influence, but had rather risk it than not to knock off the chains of French fraternity. We are literally a primal curse of heaven. Pardon me, my dear sir, I will not be obstinate, but I must be convinced of my error and I will retract. I know the sensible part of our southern brethren fear separation, and I really think a measure would tend to hinder it. I am, sir, yours sincerely, Uriah Tracy. So, He's saying, look, in the South, 
the sensible people in the South don't want a separation, but I'm I'm calling for it. If the French simply, uh, you know, if we if we have a pro-French policy, I'm calling for it. They don't want it, but they're going to get it anyways. The sensible people don't want it. Well, what's that say about Tracy? You're not very sensible. I mean, this this is this is where the the letter is interesting from a historical standpoint, but also because of historical interpretation. When you run into this issue, when you have historians who are supposedly telling you what this letter means, and then you go read the whole thing, and it doesn't really mean what they said it meant, that's where you run into the problem with these righteous causers, with these people who are you know, supposedly gatekeepers of the truth. And, of course, the other side, well, you don't read the secession doc. I've read all the secession. I, I know what all these things say. And, I, look, I understand that. I understand what they say, okay? Uh, you don't you don't read the primary documents. Yes, I do. I read all this stuff. Uh, so this is the funny thing is the same people that cry foul over those things will go and do this kind of stuff and cherry pick and pull things to support their position and say that the other side doesn't read histor- uh, historical documents or anything else. This is this is absolutely ridiculous. Um, I find fault typically with people who read these documents and then come up with alternate reality about what they say. All right. Hope you enjoyed this week at the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next week. See you then.